Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and at 101.9 in Manchester. We are podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you are listening to this by podcast, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out all the podcasts available under the Beyond Politics banner. Well, my guest today is an attorney, a dad, an activist. Um, Michael Lewis um, uh, has had a distinguished career in the law. He is also a writer on legal subjects and someone who is in the forefront of calling to task those who fail to protect children in our society and in New Hampshire. Michael, welcome back to Capital Close-Up. Thanks for having me, Paul. So it strikes me that um, as an attorney, uh, often um, attorneys, and I, I was one for a long time, take on certain issues uh, of critical importance to them. Um, uh, sometimes passion, sometimes uh, it comes from other places. So it seems to me that you've, uh, at least as long as I've known you, had a particular focus on the way society does or does not protect our children. Um, what? Where did that come from? Why? Why? How did that develop for you? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I um, I have to say that I don't think it was planted in the same way before I became a parent. So. Um, and uh, maybe this is common. Maybe it isn't. Um, I, I, um, I, I think back to you know, for instance, when I went to college, I went to Kenyon College, and I was a political science major, and I had an incredible education. And so much of of what we studied, if I had focused on it differently from the standpoint of, you know, of where I am now as a parent, was really about the. Um, the relationship between notions of justice and a healthy society and how to raise and protect children. You know, so for instance, Plato's Republic, which is the book that I keep closest to my desk, um, it was the first the first uh, time I really felt like I had a serious thought. And so much of when I read it as a sophomore in college, and so much of that book is focused on the connection between how to formulate a just system and society and the education of youth. And of course, Socrates, who's the main character, was executed for um, for corrupting the youth uh, in Athens. Uh, but all the way through to John Locke, who, you know, whose thoughts really inform so much of um, of our American system of laws and justice, including New Hampshire's system of laws, uh, at least as a matter of state constitutional law, which are explicitly Lockean. You know, Locke wrote, I mean, one of the most important pieces and influential pieces um, he wrote was about um, understanding human nature and human thought, even more important than, um, you know, at least in the early stages of the American Republic and thought, even more important than his most famous second treatise on government, which, uh, which people tend to know him for now more, was, you know, was his thinking on how to raise children and how to protect children and the, the status of, of, the, of the mind of a developing person um, in, you know, in a free society. And I mean, as a, as a child, my thinking back on having been a child myself, 
and you know the things I liked and and didn't like, the things that caused me sadness, harm, and joy. Um, you know, I uh, you know I, I felt like I feel like I'm a fairly sensitive person to you know to how people are raised and how they affect how the how people are raised and the violence or the care that they experience uh, impacts them as people. I think even before I was a parent, I was somewhat sensitive to that. As I was a prosecutor, so as you know, I was. I came back here um, in 2007 with Leah Plunkett, my wife. Um, you know, and as a prosecutor, I saw so many people who um, whose childhoods were so obviously connected to the failures um, of uh, of how they'd executed their lives as adults uh, that. You know that these concerns about the connection between, you know, how people are raised, the safe environments they have, the care we give them, and the overall health of society just persisted. Now, Leah was, you know, was much more explicitly engaged in the project of thinking about law and children because when we moved here and, and I was doing murder cases, she started the Youth Law Project at New Hampshire Legal Assistance which was a first of its kind civil legal services program directed explicitly and only to the welfare of children. And so as her husband, I would hear anonymously, but nevertheless, I would hear about things that were happening in the state that I was raised in. Cause I grew up in Durham and went to Oyster river that I found kind of shocking, um, you know, pervasive failures in, um, in, you know, school districts responses to children with obvious manifest, uh, learning disabilities, uh, you know, facing poverty, facing uh, domestic violence, either against, you know, another parent in the same home or a relative or themselves, malnourishment, all that stuff Leah faced and she would bring that home with her. And so, you know, again, but this is all pre-parenting. And then, um, and then we had our first son who's now 11 and, and, I, and you know this too, Paul, as a parent. I mean, like when you have a child, uh, it is probably the most life-changing thing that a person experiences for most people. And one of the ways that it's it was life-changing for me is like, okay, here is this thing. It's so obviously this human being vulnerable. I mean, it's like complete. It's not like a puppy. Like we now, we have a new puppy and our puppy is like able to run around and like, you know, interact and play like a, a human child is just completely inert in some ways. And, um, and, uh, or totally it, appears, it, it appears that way. Yeah. I know. I mean, like, but I mean, the things that are happening inside are incredible, Yeah, but like the physical ability to defend mm -hmm. itself is not there. I mean, I, I remember having, when our friend Dan Feltis had his, um, had his first, uh, dot when child, I remember saying to him, look, you know, the, when, when Sam came home, we had him in a bassinet next to our, our bed and I would lean over like five times, uh, you know, a night, like, is this kid still breathing? Like, is he still alive? Um, and he was, I mean, I would say, look, you know, the reality is they are remarkable in how they appear to be completely vulnerable, but they will persist. Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, and then, you know, as you focus on that, as I focused on it and I, you know, and Sam got older and we had Alana, our daughter, and they started to interact with other children. You see the variety of experiences that children have, at least I did. 
and you see the ones who are really not being taken care of. And for me, I just, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to live with the worst cases of it and to, you know, and, and to feel as if there's not something that people, you know, can or should do and, and, and that I can or should do. And the, you know, the problem here is that in New Hampshire, the publicity and the public reality of the very, very worst cases are unavoidable to anyone who picks up a newspaper and actually thinks through the implications of what we're seeing across, you know, across generations now. And I, what we're seeing is essentially every major institution in New Hampshire, um, you know, abetted, facilitated, was engaged or was engaged in violence against children going back 40 years or 50 years at least. So um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, I mean, I mean you the know, the union leader, the, inst the institutions would, would, would certainly disagree. They'd say they care for children. They don't disagree. I mean, look, the union leader ran a front page article admitting that its publisher had had, um, you know, what would be a criminal relationship with minors, um, you know, at, at one point, I think last year. So that, you know, you have the press. Um, you know, the uh, Concord, for instance, Con the Concord School District, the public school district had major issues with failing to be transparent about um, improper criminal uh, relationships between its faculty members and, you know, and minors. The, the private school institutions um, in other instances, so we got, you know, now journalism, public schools, private schools, um, you know, you have the, the very high profile cases of St. Paul's and Phillips Exeter, among others. Then you have um, you have uh, you have our state government and the reality of you know the now very public and you know youth detention center um, uh, violence, abuse, and criminality, um, where we had a population of children who, because they were either um, they were either themselves victimized by um, you know, by violence in the normal uh, family situation um, had to be taken out of the home and placed somewhere, or there were juveniles in, in the context of a juvenile prosecution. Um, they were in our state institutions as children, and they were being victimized physically and sexually. So the state is implicated, and there's no doubt about that. I mean, the state has admitted to it by passing a law that, you know, that says, hundred million dollars at least is what we're going to pay to victims. Um, and that's an acknowledgement of, that's a fact that the state is owned up to um, about its misfeasance. Um, and um, I'm sure that I could go on and on. I mean, what are the other institutions? I mean, look, I mean, I guess, um, you know, you could say that the, the voting public generally is to blame because it, it continued with a series of obviously flawed, undifferentiated policies, which I consider to be kind of free rider policies, where they pass laws on the one hand, criminalizing behavior um, and demanding very serious substantive uh, you know, uh, contributions to the public with regard to check, 
you know, checking on and protecting children, including mandatory disclosure obligations um, of a very broad series of behaviors that we define as child abuse and neglect on the one hand. But then, you know, we failed to fund on the back end a response system that is functional. And no one, I mean, the, the, the person who heads DCYF, which is one of the major response systems, I don't think he would disagree with that. I mean, he's, I don't think, I mean, he's actually built a substantial, this is Joe Ribsom, who's the head of, of DCYF. He's built a substantial public record of saying things like, we don't have enough people, we don't pay them enough, and they're not you know, trained up enough to handle the influx of very serious cases involving child abuse and neglect in New Hampshire. In the article that Anne-Marie Tibbins put out this weekend uh, on New Hampshire Bulletin regarding the dire shortage of youth counselors at the current iteration of the Sydney News Center, the Youth Detention Center, you know, he's he's on record also saying, look, you know, we are we are not able to staff these facilities with our current, you know, with our current staff sufficient to respond to the need. And this is not a new problem. I mean, this problem, you know, is about, you know, failure to address violence against children has really been quite present in public for, you know, for five to six years. And the solution, the solutions, the necessary steps that are not sufficient, but necessary are also very obvious and even more obvious now, which is that you have to get real about the cost of protecting people that we claim to treasure, children. And you have to get even more real in an inflationary economy with a competitive labor market in a difficult job setting. You're not going to have results. I mean, no, I, I don't, I, I'd like to see any like honest MBA come in and assess New Hampshire's state response to child abuse, neglect, and, you know, and other related issues regarding the protection of children and say that we have a realistic response to the labor market that's, you know, that exists um, from which we would draw the kinds of public servants who would be able to qualify in a qualified way, assess the situation of children, intervene effectively and protect them in a way that we've committed to do under law. I just thought like it's, and it's totally ridiculous to me, completely so is, irrational. Is this a new problem in New Hampshire no, or, is it, mean, or, or, or is it a, is it a deeply embedded societal inability to give uh, real meat to the lip service that's paid to caring about children and 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 doesn't it go back forever and ever i mean you know it's like forever and ever amen i mean think about child labor i mean and how long it took to create law around uh child labor we've all seen the pictures of the Dirty little kids with hollowed out eyes who've been working in factories for 20 hours a day. I mean, um, this is not the, the, the mistreatment, the overall societal mistreatment of children is, is not new. And as a prosecutor, I mean, what you said struck, I'm a former prosecutor also. I, I was a murder prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And, and what I saw was for 99.9% of the, of the, individuals who were involved in the cases I was prosecuting, 
they were damaged by what had happened in their childhood. Now, you know, it, under the law, that was no excuse for what they had done, right. but the psychological, emotional impairments that they suffered uh, were clearly connected to who they were. I mean, it, it made them who they were as people, and yeah. it was the underlying bed for the terrible things, uh, the terrible things they they had done. And so if we have this, we have a deep societal long-term issue with connecting rhetoric to action. And in New Hampshire, it's um, especially challenging because of the pressures of a governmental system, which is perennially underfunded by choice uh, for, for various reasons. And we won't get into that. But children don't vote. Children Children don't give money to politicians. Um, and after all, I mean, you know, if we're talking frankly, as a former member of Congress, um, you, as you know, if you're an elected representative, you care a little bit about who's who's contributing to you and who who you can look for for look to for votes in terms of a voice. So it's a it's a it's a it's a deeply embedded issue. Now I started out by asking you why you were so passionate mm -hmm. about it. And it it strikes me that, I mean, you're certainly married to somebody who's had a long, long time a passion for issues around around children. And it sounds like what it really struck you when you had your own children and mm -hmm. um, uh, looked down at them in their vulnerable state and realized how critical it is to a child and the child's development to have a caring, loving, supportive relationship um, in 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 the home or wherever the children are, instead of a violent and abusive relationship. And we're seeing the societal consequences in New Hampshire and around around the nation, you know, especially acute in New Hampshire. Um, it's um. It, it it's something that you know look when i when i came to new hampshire many many years ago i was president of a not for profit called family strength mm -hmm. and the work of family strength was providing an alternative to taking troubled children mm -hmm. out of the home it mm -hmm. was an effort to focus all the resources as an alternative to removing kids from the home to what would happen in the home and essentially providing full tilt, full on services to the entire family, recognizing that the, you know, that, that children weren't abused in a vacuum, that it had a lot to do with the entire family and the entire family needed to be treated in order to deal with what it was happening to the children and the court system welcomed the alternative and uh family strength flourished for a long time as an alternative it it didn't it didn't last forever but mm -hmm. it was a serious alternative to understanding the psychological and emotional impact mike you and your wife leah plunkett wrote a really important uh law review article uh that um uh, was published in the pepperdine law it's review. going to be 
It's going to be published. published. I've read an advanced copy, which you shared with me. Uh, It's titled The Wages of Crying Life, What States Must Do to Protect protect Children After the Fall of Roe. Um, Talk to us about what the fall of Roe means for kids, because you take on you take on the the myth, the dangerous myth that um, pro-life means pro-life. And essentially, you take you take that head on and basically um, uh, address the challenging question. OK, you all say you're pro-life. What does that really mean? And how can you say you're pro-life when you don't care for kids that are forced that you're forcing to be brought into this world. You don't care for them after they're brought into the world. Right. How do you do that from a from a legal and philosophical approach? Take us through some of your thinking in 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 this law review article, and then I'd like you also to focus on uh, the passages where you uh, directly focus on what's going on in New Hampshire. Sure. So, I mean the. Leah and I both have a strange, you know, sort of focus on this that's that allows us to, uh, I think, work really well together on this sort of piece. I mean, she was the C4 chair of Planned Parenthood um, uh, for a long time in, in northern New England, I think, for a long time. Anyway, so she's been intimately involved in reproductive rights uh, in, in freedoms in New Hampshire and also, as I said, you know, has focused a lot of her her career as an attorney and as a scholar in the area of the rights and interests of children. So she started the Youth Law Project in New Hampshire at the New Hampshire Legal Assist- at New Hampshire Legal Assistance. She wrote a book called Sharonhood, which was published by MIT Press. It is about how adults compromise the privacy, interests, and rights of children um, by sharing information online. She's actually, Paul, in LA right now because Dr. Phil has asked her to be a guest on to discuss these issues, which is kind of incredible. So I'm home with the kids and the dogs. Um, oh man, when is that? When is that going to be? I think it's gonna it's gonna air in the next like couple weeks. Um, uh-huh. So and you know and and then um, and so she and I have a, a long sort of running narrative about the intersection between um, you know caring for children on the one hand, claims of infanticide. On the other hand, in regard to you know uh, abortion regulations and you know and how um, these you know the policies that we see can you know possibly be reconciled and um, and and so I think a lot of people you know the two of us included were both not surprised but still super devastated that um, the Supreme Court did what it did when it, you know, it hacked away at, you know, decades of civil rights for women um, this summer with Dobbs and, and you know, and, and devastated in multiple ways, including in terms of how the Supreme Court expressed itself, um, which I, you know, I found very, very damaging and almost hateful, um, you know, and, and I, you know, as someone who has written a lot about American history and the use of history, um, with regard to judicial decision makings, the undifferentiated inclusion of brutal history into a definition of the content of our laws as relates to the reproductive freedoms of women was, I felt that in my soul. It was just really, it was Alito's decision. It's just so bad, I think. And, but it's not, 
it, it is very bad, but it's not the only bad thing that the U.S. Supreme Court has done over time. And one of the other bad things that it's done over time is it's really turned a blind eye uh, from a substantive constitutional law standpoint to the interests of, of, you know, of children who are you know, victims of violent child abuse and neglect and the state's obligation to protect them. And so on the one hand, you have Dobbs, which, you know, which claims to, you know, at least claims to care about uh, the state's interest to protect life. And the other hand, you have another case from 30 or 40 years ago called DeShaney, where the U.S. Supreme Court and very cold-bloodedly says that a child who the state is committed to protect who you know the state knows is in dire straits with regard to one very brutal and violent parent in that case a child i mean a, a father who is then beaten to the point of permanent mental damage uh, by the same father has no claim from a substantive constitutional law standpoint against the state for failing to protect and so um, so it's out has of has Cheney ever been overruled no, still good law. No, in fact, is you know one of the things that's interesting is when the law is so destabilized as it was with um, with Dobbs vis-a-vis Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, people like me start to think about other ways to be constructive about the destabilization, and partly that article, this article, is about that. So, you know, there there is a major loss to. Um, to freedoms in the U.S. And the loss is not, I mean, people may respond, well, you know, there are multiple ways in which you can define the loss. The reality is the U.S. Supreme Court was going to consistently chip away per the Roberts concurrence at the right, you know, so the right would exist, but it would be a shell. But the reality is that, um, that when the U.S. Supreme Court speaks on a constitutional law issue, it has ricocheting effects that are not just about U.S. Supreme Court precedent. It informs state constitutional law for instance. And so, you know, you, you have state constitutional law, which is more protective than federal constitutional law, which can be impacted. And, you know, courts can be, can feel emboldened to step back from greater levels of protection that actually exist on the front line for people in states. So, right? so hold on, just for our, for our listeners, w- just to, to, to break that down just a little bit. Uh, our listeners know that there's both a federal system of laws and a state system right. of laws, and there's a state constitution, a federal constitution. And it's often the case um, you know, when you're arguing before the New Hampshire Supreme Court, uh, where you can make the argument that, well, this may not be protected by the federal constitution, but our state our New Hampshire state constitution in whatever area you may be arguing provides greater protection. So judges, you don't have to look to the U S constitution in this case, it, this, this, this is protected under the New Hampshire constitution. Does the New Hampshire constitution provide um, greater protection for children in the post Dobbs era than the U.S. Constitution uh, does, according to this Supreme Court? Well, I, I think yes is the direct answer to that, and it's a perfect way of describing the dynamic you've mentioned. So, for instance, there was a case called San Antonio versus Rodriguez that was brought to the U.S. Supreme Court on the question of whether children in Texas um, had a right as a separately protected group to an adequate education as a matter of the federal equal protection law 
under the Constitution, and the U.S. Supreme Court said no. But the same type of case was brought um, before the New Hampshire Supreme Court in Claremont 1, which is a famous case under the state constitution, and the New Hampshire Supreme Court said yes. And so it's very, it, it's, it's, it's not hard to draw the inference that, you know, that if the New Hampshire Supreme Court is continuing its tradition along the same lines, that it could very easily break with the federal constitutional law with regard to state constitutional law and the state and the you know, and the state's obligation to protect children as a matter of state constitutional law. And it's something that I've argued, actually, um, you know, in settlement discussions with the state. And this case, this situation has never reached any court, um, you know, either principally because a lot of my cases settle. Um, But I think there are strong indications that, you know, that our state constitutional law could be interpreted differently. Um, and so I guess that speaks against the point I was making about, you know, the ricocheting effect of Dobbs to a certain extent, because it could be that, you know, with the, in the right set of circumstances, if you have the right set of judges interpreting constitutional law, you know, with, you know, when informed by good argument that they may end up protecting people's civil rights with regard to reproductive freedom um, more robustly than what the U.S. Supreme Court is willing to do. And we may see that in jurisdictions across the country going forward. So, but, so let me just let me just yep. ask you ask you this question. The the we are we are now in a situation in New Hampshire where um, New Hampshire adopted the first abortion ban in its modern history, uh, and that was a year ago. That was mm-hmm. even before Dobbs. Uh, the governor signed it. It went in through a budgetary through a budget, which the governor said he couldn't veto uh, when he'd clearly is able mm-hmm. to veto anything he doesn't like. Yeah. He still claims he's pro-choice. And at the same time, in a relentless um, campaign in the executive council, uh, the state has defunded healthcare providers whose services include abortion, i.e. Planned Parenthood. It's been a long time, a plan of the, of the, of the radical right to, to uh, do everything they could to um, uh, prevent uh, access to abortion. And it now has come to, to the fore in New Hampshire. Um, so we, it's easy in a way to understand the devastating impact of uh, the, that current state of the law in New Hampshire on what was an accepted right of mothers and their doctors to decide what needed to be done, uh, what they wanted to do um, in, 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 in protecting women's reproductive freedom. I mean, the, the sea change and health and, 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 and their future families and mm-hmm. their future lives. Right. That accepted right had been embedded for uh, a half a century, uh, basically, or more in New Hampshire. So we can see how that has affected women's reproductive rights. How do you make the argument that that is connected mm. to uh, the issues around the way the state does or does not care for its children and does or does not uh, accept and and follow through on its responsibility if it claims it has a responsibility to protect the welfare of children. How, how is Dobbs and the post-Roe world connected in New Hampshire to right. so, child I abuse mean, and neglect? 
all I, all I, you know, we do is like sort of draw a, a line from statements that have been made by, you know, people like Asa Hutchinson, the Republican governor of Arkansas, or Mitt Romney, the Republican senator from Utah, recently in the aftermath of, um, you know, of Dobbs, both of both of whom have made public statements about the effect of Dobbs together with abortion bans on the stress that will now be placed on systems of care throughout the country when it comes to children. So Asa Hutchinson, we cite this in our article, you know, essentially says now Arkansas needs more federal aid because Dobbs has fallen and, um, you know, and there will be no more children who are born in Arkansas as a result. And automatically that creates greater stress on a system that, that commits to protecting children. And, um, okay, so point one. Now, Asa Hutchinson is no, like, stated fan of the federal welfare programs, um, I don't think. Uh, and, I mean, it's been a 40-year, um, you know, object of, you know, of attack, too, by the same politicians. Mitt Romney, um, you, know, is, is, you know, is trying to expand child tax credit programs and other benefits to children. This is all reported in the Washington Post. Um, in response to Dobbs, you know, also I think in an acknowledgement that you cannot stop halfway. Um, that is, you can't say that you care about you care about life, that you care about the lives of children. You care particularly about the lives of vulnerable children. And um, you know, I mean, look, uh, children who are born, notwithstanding the desire of their mothers to have abortions, are are going to be children who are going to face challenges um, as a result of what we know about the demographics of women who seek abortions. And so, and that is to say like they're facing poverty, they're, they're facing existential situations that, um, you know, that regard their own welfare in bringing a child to term. And those are not, those are very tough situations to enter into as a child. So what then must the state that claims as categorically as many do to care about life, what it must then do to follow through rationally with regard to um, the protecting children. What are the demands of rationality and reason? And rationality and reason are baseline commitments that laws, you know, so as to not be arbitrary or capricious or, you know, or insane. Um, you know, they profess to embrace. That is, you know, we're going to have rational, reasonable policies. And so, and what's? Let me just ask: What's the remedy if right. the well, policies I mean, are are irrational, uh, without reason, um, and fail the fail <sighs> fail the rationality test? Isn't 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 you know? I mean, look, you make the claim that that so you have Dobbs where they where the claim is we're protecting life, we're pro life. Um, what they mean is life life apparently life inside the womb before it's born, we're going to protect that and that and, and life. But but once the child is born, the state or federal government or whoever it is that uh, you lay out is obligated to protect children fails utterly in its stated policies to protect children. And you point out that that's, that's completely irrational. You can't be pro-life if when a child is born, you neglect the obligation and duty to protect that child from what mm -hmm. child abuse, neglect, 
etc. And you go through the Harmony Montgomery case, you talk about the failures of uh, the state, which are clear, the record is now crystal clear. Uh, New Hampshire, um, in many ways, has totally failed its children, whether through inadequate funding, which they're now making some stab at, they enacted a an office of child advocate, but the state doesn't cooperate properly with the office mm-hmm. of the child advocate. So that's toothless. So what's if if this irrational system is what we've got, where they now claim to be pro-life, but aren't doing and clearly are not protecting children, what's the remedy? Is it a class action suit? Well, I mean, I think there are many different approaches. Um, and I want to talk about one that's litigious and one that is um, that is not. Uh, the first is really, I think, more what we describe in um, in our piece, which is, you know, really think about. I mean, both of us care about life, and both of us care about protecting life. Both Leah and I both care about it deeply. So think about how you can actually reach agreement among the people who disagree about abortion in regard to the thing that we can all agree on, which is you know, protecting the lives of children. And, you know, and one of the ways that we can reach agreement is, is at least to begin to understand the plight of children in a way that's transparent and as articulated by credible people in our community. So we begin with encouraging medical societies, for instance, which are comprised of people who are going to be affected by abortion bans because doctors are targeted as, you know, as potential criminal, as a, as a source of potential criminal prosecution, if they, if they perform abortions, even those they believe to be medically necessary to protect the child and the mother, um, or the mother, I guess, in an abortion context. But um, and uh, you know, and the you know, the encouragement is like really study a jurisdiction to determine how well it's doing in terms of abiding by life, because that can lead to some important discoveries in regard to the steps that you know that a state can can take in order to protect the lives that are born and the imperatives are even greater now that people will have to bring more lives into existence as we're in many jurisdictions, um, you know, and include particularly the, in those that have adopted abortion bans. So, you know, we also think that, you know, that it's, it's entirely consistent with traditional lawmaking in U S and New Hampshire in particular to, to, you know, to um, internalize cost and to demand discipline with regard to government policymaking that infringes on freedoms. And, you know, we give as an example, for instance, the Fifth Amendment takings clause and the Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures um, as examples of both qualitative and, and or quantitative and qualitative demands that the law makes of a government that would infringe, you know, the, basically a quid pro quo. So if you're going to interfere with the freedom of people, then you have to you know, you have to demonstrate a public purpose and you have to demonstrate justification and return and rationality. And so, you know, and the same same kinds of policies have been adopted with regard to balanced budget amendments and tax caps. You know, these are all about inputs to government. And our claim is if, you know, we want to see outputs that government performs in order to remain rational in the life-saving project and to balance the balance sheet with regard to life across the the moment of birth. And so, you know, we would say, for instance, that 
you know, that a state should, you know, should reaffirm that it actually does protect the lives of children in a way that's documented and credible before it imposes an abortion ban as a cost, as a wage of crime. So as not to cry life, but to really protect life. So as not to be insincere about this most important thing. And, um, you know, and we also see, we see, I mean, I see room for rationality arguments, which are among the weakest of the recognized arguments, you know, that, that, may exist in, you know, in litigation. My view generally about litigation in this area is that I would like to see more from the public enforcement community um, around the protection of children. I think I've said this in your, on your program before, but like this situation, particularly as it relates to YDC, but also as it relates to um, the child abuse and neglect context outside of the four corners of a state institution, um, cries out for federal government intervention cries out. I mean, you know, people have dual identities as a matter of law, at least, at least um, they have their state, their, their residents and subjects of states and their residents and subjects of the federal government. And there are children who are United States citizens born here who have civil rights that are both protected as a matter of, you know, anti-discrimination law that's been passed by Congress and constitutional law that you know, our federal officials, including the U.S. Attorney's Office, should take seriously and, you know, and should in this context view as um, as uh, an imperative for federal enforcement protection, particularly in light of what you've said earlier, which is that children don't have their own voice. So they cannot go to the polls and affect directly um, elections the way that, in a way that, you know, causes politicians, this is manifestly provable in New Hampshire, to pay attention and make the right policy decisions. And so, in these circumstances, you know, having a government enforcement mechanism that's a proxy that will bring a lawsuit, a civil rights lawsuit or a prosecution against state institutions that the state knows have failed and are failing. I mean, it's documented in all these reports. Seems like it's actually kind of low-hanging fruit and, um, you know, and yet like could be incredibly bountiful, could, you know, result in amazing yeah. things for children. You know, I want to point out that New Hampshire back in the 70s um, uh, was in the forefront of dealing with uh, the inadequacies of our mental health system, which still persist. But, uh, you know, famously, we were we were in the forefront of closing the Laconia State School. Um, we instituted some very advanced uh, approaches to community community mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in um, for for those of you who may be joining us late here at the end of the show, we're we're speaking with Attorney Michael Lewis, who together with his wife. Uh, Leah Plunkett has written an upcoming article in the Pepperdine Law Review called The Wages of Crying Life, What States Must Do to Protect Children After the Fall of Roe. And I just want to say what you have done is you have given legal meat and a roadmap for what, 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 what people have often argued, which is if you say you're pro-life, then prove it by, by, by caring about children after they're born. If or, you're going to f- force children to be born, right. you better do what you need to do right. to care for them. And I and I will say this, on the positive side, although abortion is the most challenging emotional issue that has divided our society, um, 
in the closing seconds we have, I just want to say that your article provides, I think, some common ground um, because it's not an accusatory article. It's a factual article that says we can come together around caring for kids. My guest has been Michael Lewis. This is Capital Close-Up. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Paul.